Amen. Love that. Can't wait. Well, as kids uh, K through 5 are heading to their classroom, the rest of you, love for you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James. We're going to be in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 this morning. So go ahead and turn there, James 4, 4 through 6. We were supposed to be in verses 4 through 10. We had a last-minute uh, audible on Friday because there's just too much good stuff in verses 4 to 6. So that's where we're staying. So uh, life group leaders, some of the life group questions might not make any sense. So just a heads up on that. But uh, we are... Uh, we got a lot of good stuff to talk about in James chapter 4. Um, so hopefully as you're turning there with me, hopefully you're turning there with me, uh, as you do that, I'm going to read these three verses and then I will pray. It says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray one more time. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in your word to know what the end is going to bring. If we didn't have your word, we wouldn't know what the end would be, God. We wouldn't be able to make sense of the world we live in right now. But because of your word, we can. We can know right now that although the power of sin has been defeated, we still are within the presence of sin. And Jesus came the first time to make a way for all who believe to have relationship with God. And when he comes back, and he will come back, all those who are following him will be joined with him. And all those who are not following him will not. So, God, we thank you for your word, even when your word brings hard truths to us. We praise you. Help us to see what you want us to see. Help us to see the areas of sin in our lives that this passage points out to us and help us to be even more amazed by your incredible grace that never ends, God. So help me as I preach, guard my words. May you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that's a blessing and a challenge about preaching through books of the Bible, and that's what we do here at Rock Prairie, by and large. We pick a book of the Bible and preach through it until we've gotten to the end, and then we pick a new book and preach through that one. And one of the blessings about that, as well as a challenge, is that I, as I preach it, I'm learning right along with you. And so um, before we usually uh, jump into a new book of the Bible. I'm trying to study the book as a whole to kind of learn, like, what are the themes that we're going to find in this book? What are, what's coming up ahead? So I can kind of give our church a little roadmap to understand what we're going to see in the book that we study. And so all the way back at the beginning of James, you might remember that I said James is kind of like, quote, a quick start guide to the Christian faith. You remember he kind of used that analogy of you buy something and it needs to be put together 
and you have like a giant instruction book in 16 different languages, and then you have like a little pamphlet that is quick, that's quick start guide. And that's what James, uh, I said at the time, it really is. It's, it's not really, James is not filled with a whole bunch of like flowery theological language. James is really getting to the point, and he's showing us what does it mean to live the Christian life. It's very practical. It's nuts and bolts. It's real. We like that about the book of James. And now that we're getting toward the end of our time in James, I don't know if I would quite give it that exact title, the quick start guide to the Christian faith. I still think it's true. But as we've been in James more and more, there's kind of been something else that has really struck me, which is that really James is more of an in-your-face guide to the Christian life. Like, he really gets at it. James doesn't mince words at all. He's very direct. James doesn't beat around the bush. He tells it exactly like it is. I am not like this at all. If you know me, you know that about me. Emily is always uh, laughing at me. Like, say, if we're at a restaurant or something and the waiter brings the wrong order to me, she's always like, you need to tell them that it's the wrong order. And I'm always like, eh, it's, it's okay. I can, I can enjoy this. And, and then the, maybe the waiter comes back and I'm like, I'm so sorry, but, you know, I, I think you maybe might have brought me the wrong food. You know, it's probably on me. I probably didn't say it right, but I think this maybe is wrong. And Emily's just like, come on, how, just tell them this is wrong. Bring me, bring me the right thing. James is not afraid to be direct. Think about some of the things we've already seen him say in his letter so far, things that we've preached. He said, if you doubt, you're double-minded and unstable in all your ways. There's no, he's not hedging there. If you if you're doubt, you're double-minded, you're unstable in all your ways, he says. He says, if you hear the word and don't do what it says, you're deceiving yourself. He says, if you don't bridle your tongue, your religion is worthless. He called his readers foolish. He said faith without works three times. He said it's dead. He said it's useless. Then just to drive home the point, he said it's dead. He says jealousy and selfishness are signs of demonic wisdom. And then in verse 4 of chapter 4, it's like, and now I'm really going to tell you what I think. See, all along in this letter, as he starts a new section, he's been addressing his readers as dear brothers. But now, in this new section, he starts it out, you adulterous people. We read these things back to back. It's like, geez, James, chill out a little bit. Like, you're a lot of fun at parties, I bet. (laughs) Now, some of you, might have grown up either kind of in your home it was like this or in a Christian tradition where language like this was normal, right? Like if you listened to a sermon and you weren't getting yelled at for something, something was wrong. Some of you maybe grew up in a tradition like that. Others might be feeling like, good grief, where's the grace here, James? I thought Jesus was supposed to make me feel good. I read these things. I don't feel good at all. So what's going on? Here, when we really get to chapter 4, verse 4, which is just the most direct and condemning language that James can say, you adulterous people, what's happening here? One thing that we need to remember and be reminded of is the key to understanding James and what he says is remembering who his older brother was. Somebody shouted out, who was James's older brother? Jesus, very good. Good job, guys. Who did Jesus 
have the greatest rebuke for? Who did Jesus speak the most strongly against in his ministry? The Pharisees, right? Religious leaders of the time, scribes and Pharisees. He had strong words for them as well. He called them a brood of vipers. He called them whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, you're dead on the inside, is what he meant by that. The same Jesus who said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said that, and he also said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Jesus said that too. That's not on as many bumper stickers. So what did Jesus have against the Pharisees? Why was he always picking on them? What did he have against them? Did they just bug him for some reason? Like how uh, IU fans are probably bugging Purdue fans this week. Sorry, I just had to get that in there. Well, the reason that Jesus spoke so strongly against the Pharisees was this. The Pharisees were the ones who claimed on earth to have a special relationship with God. In fact, people looked up to them to see how they were supposed to relate with God. And Jesus, fully God, and yet fully man, knew that this couldn't be further from the truth. The Pharisees were getting it all wrong and doing great damage in communicating to those around them, this is how you relate to God, when the Pharisees were wrong. The Pharisees were the ones who were making it look like they had it all together, like they were doing all the right things, and their hearts couldn't have been further from him. And Jesus sees the heart, doesn't he? In other words, they were double-minded. Their lives appeared to be one way, and yet, the reality was much different. Now, what do we see James writing against over and over and over again in this letter? It's the same thing. Double-mindedness. Right? Remember, think about it. Knowing the word and yet not doing it. Like a man who looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like. That's double-mindedness. If you know what God's word says and you don't do it, you're a divided person between yourself. You're a two-souled person is what James is saying. Praising God out of one side of your mouth, cursing him out of the other side of your mouth. That's double-mindedness. Treating rich people with kindness and poor people with disrespect. That's double-mindedness, showing partiality. Being teachers of the law without actually doing it yourself. Claiming to have a faith, and yet your life, your works don't live it out. All of these things, I hope you can see, all these things, these themes should sound familiar that we've studied in the book of James. All these things have this in common. It's double-mindedness. It's making it appear one, like your life is one way, your relationship with God is one way, while all the while, it's the opposite. And James, like Jesus, is trying to wake them up from their fantasy world by using this harsh language. That's why James speaks so harshly, just like Jesus spoke so harshly to the Pharisees. He's trying to wake them up. Say, this isn't real. You think your faith is real. You are deluded within yourselves because you think your faith is real, but it's not. 
And when someone is living in a fantasy land like that, you need to speak kind of harshly to snap them out of it, don't you? Example of this uh, from my time in college. One of my good friends from college was an art major. His nickname was The Nugget. We called him Nugs. And uh, Nugs was not an athletic person at all. In fact, my floor in college was filled with uh, unathletic people, to say it kindly. We had a, on our floor, we, we had a C league. It was the bottom league intramural basketball team. And we won one game all season because the other team didn't show up. Other than that, we lost them all. And Nugs uh, rode the bench on that team. So that's kind of the level of athleticism that we're, we're talking about here. But he would always say something that just drove us nuts. He, he would always say, like, you know, he said, I know I'll never do this. But I really feel like if I just practiced really, really hard, like every day, if I just gave it my all, if I tried my best, I feel like I could make the NBA. <laughs> and we all kind of like, you know, thought he was joking, but he just kept saying it over and over. And we realized like, I think you're kind of serious. And so finally, one of our friends named Ben, who was decent at basketball, just kind of like went off on him. He was like, Nugs, you are the single worst basketball player I've ever seen. You're five foot ten on a good day in no universe, not in this universe, nor in any possible conceivable universe. Is there ever a time where you could ever even make a high school basketball team, much less an NBA team? It's never going to happen. Now, if you didn't know any of that backstory, if you just kind of walked up on that conversation and you heard Ben just reaming out Nugs, You'd be like, man, this guy's kind of harsh. But he needed to hear exactly that, didn't he? He needed to be woken up out of his delusion that somehow he could make the NBA. And that's a silly example of what's happening here in the book of James. They had deluded themselves into thinking that something was true about their relationship with God. That in reality couldn't have been farther from the truth. And they needed a wake-up call. They needed a wake-up call. And that brings us to today because, unfortunately, church, it's not something that is only true like back then, right? Yeah, they needed to hear that, but we don't. No. We need to hear that, don't we? The reality is it can be just as true of us today as it was back then. We need to hear this. Every single one of us needs to test our hearts and that's God's grace, just even having the opportunity to test our hearts. So what does James have to say to us, to those of us who would test our hearts this morning? Well, two things. The first thing, as we've seen already, we'll look into more in a minute, that he gives us a stern warning. No bones about it. He gives a stern warning to his readers. And then secondly, we'll see he gives us two beautiful reminders. But first, we're going to look at this stern warning a little bit. Look at it again in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's going to be two things that help us understand what he's saying here. The first of all is the idea of friendship. What does he mean, a friend of the world? So the Greek idea of friendship, which would have been kind of the prevailing cultural idea of friendship back then, 
was very different than our idea of friendship. We're pretty casual about friendship, right? We call many people our friends. We have, you might have 500 Facebook friends. It doesn't mean you're friends with all 500 of those people, right? It's not true friendship. The Greek idea of friendship was more like our idea of having a best friend, even like a spouse relationship. Being a friend meant being united. It meant sharing everything. It meant having a deep devotion to each other. Being a friend was real. And so it makes sense why James says, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. That's why he calls them adulterous people. Again, that's strong language. He says you're committing adultery in your relationship with God. You're being unfaithful to God. The second thing we need to see is that seeking friendship with the world is a choice. It's a choice. He says whoever wishes to be a friend of the world. The Christian Standard Bible translated, whoever wants to be a friend of the world. If you have an NIV, it says, whoever chooses to be a friend of the world. It's not something that just accidentally happens. Like, whoops, I became a friend of the world over God. No. It's something that happens in your heart when you decide that God's ways aren't going to give you what you want. Now, I went to a, a coffee shop on Thursday to work on this sermon. And I always feel like on, on those do- days when I go off-site that God just like puts things in front of me that are like, man, this is exactly what I'm talking about here. There was a, a quote board at this coffee shop that I was at. And it had just, it was one quote on it, and it's like um, this was supposedly the most wisdom that they could give anyone who walked into the coffee shop. And it was just super sad. It was just a perfect example of how sad the wisdom of the world is. It was a Kurt Vonnegut quote, and if I'm honest, I don't really know who that is, but uh, this is what it said. This was the wisdom from this coffee shop. It said, I tell you, we are on this earth to fart around. Don't let anyone tell you different. That was, that was the quote. It's the meaning of life. You're alive for a little bit, so just... Mess around. Do what you want. Try to enjoy it. Do what makes you happy. And don't let anyone tell you different. Don't listen to anyone who might say there's actually a deeper meaning to life than that. Just do what makes you happy. And man, how many people are living that way right now? So many. How many people are living just oblivious to the reality that should be right in front of their faces, that there is a God who desires relationship with them, who will bring deeper meaning into their life. It should break our hearts. That should drive us to want to make Christ known from our neighbors to the nations, right? There's people right among us, many in this community who live that way, who don't know Jesus. There are people all over the world who have never, ever heard the name of Jesus. And yet... This is where the cold water hits us in the face. If that's the wisdom of the world, if that's what friendship with the world looks like, I'm just going to live my life farting around. This is what James says. Some of you people who call yourselves Christians are living that way. How could you do that? How could you seek after friendship with the world? Don't you realize that makes you an enemy of God? 
There are so many lost people who don't realize that life is about so much more than that. So as Christians, we've got got to make sure that we're not falling into that same trap. We, our lives must reflect our Savior. And so it's crucial that you ask yourself this this morning because all of us, let's just be honest, all of us allow that to creep into our lives in some way or another. All of us are seeking friendship in the, with the world in one way or another. And you've got to ask yourself this question. How have I let that happen? In what ways am I getting cozy with the ways of the world? Because friendship with the world is enmity with God. And some of you this morning, you might be feeling that conviction. And let me say, that's a good thing. If you're feeling convicted about sin in your heart right now, that's a good thing. We want to just push it off so often and just not think about it. Just think about other things. And so let me just say, don't waste that conviction. Don't ignore it. Your conscience is being pricked by something you're doing right now, something you're involved in. That you know means that you're just acting in friendship with the world. And that's putting you at odds with God. Man, don't ignore that. That is God's grace. That's the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, you have the Spirit, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And one of the things he does is convicts you of sin. And that's a blessing. So if you're feeling that conviction this morning by this kind of slap in the face that James gives us in chapter 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Again, a hard thing for us to hear. But don't waste that conviction. So what do you do with it? Where do I go with it? If I'm feeling convicted about something, where do I go? Well, that's where I'm so thankful for the rest of this passage. Here's what you need to hear this morning. God doesn't want you to stay stuck in your sin. God doesn't want you to stay stuck there. God's desire for you is to find freedom. And he's not going to be mad at you for finding freedom either. Boy, don't we think that about God sometimes? He must be just so angry with me, right? God wants you, his heart for you. We talk about this a lot. Like a physician's heart is drawn to, their, to make their patients healthy. They're not mad at their patients for being sick. They want to make them healthy. That's how God's heart is towards our sin. A physician doesn't like sickness, but he, want, he likes to see his patients become healthy. God doesn't like sin, but he wants to see you free of it. He'd love to see you free of it. And praise the Lord for the rest of these verses that show us how to be free of that sin. Verse 5, look there with me. We're going to see two beautiful reminders here from God. I love this. Verse 5, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? We actually have two beautiful reminders here for those of us who are in Christ. The first is this, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I feel like I just got to remind you of that. Sometimes I feel like I got to remind my, be reminded of that myself. We have the Holy Spirit. Forget that all the time, don't we? Jesus told his disciples, it's going to be better for you for me to leave. 
Think about that. It's going to be better for you if I'm not here physically with you. Why? Because I'm going to send a helper called the Holy Spirit. I mean, how often do we think, man, I just wish Jesus was here right now to tell me what to do. Jesus says, it's better what you have right now than if I was there next to you. Should blow our minds, right? So the first reminder is that you have everything you need already because you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is jealous for you. That's what this passage is getting at. He wants all of you. He doesn't want you to be caught in the snare of sin. We're brides of Christ. So he doesn't want us going anywhere else to have our needs met. That's what he's saying here. The Spirit wants all of you. He's jealous for you. And the second incredible reminder is this. These five words that have just arrested me this week. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. How wonderful is that? I want that on my tombstone. Here lies Mike Nafziger, a great sinner, but he gives more grace. And one of my youth leaders explained our kind of our battle with sin to me like this. That's what I think is a good uh, thing for us to hear. This morning, and first of all, um, shout out to our youth leaders, right? I just got to spend some time with them on the slopes yesterday. People who are pouring into students, like if you are doing that, thank you. You make a difference. You maybe don't realize that. I just got to uh, have a Zoom call with uh, Quentin Mendenhall, who grew up in our youth group, and now he's in ministry, and he was telling me about all the people from our church that have poured into him and shaped him into the person he is today. And if you're doing that right now, our kids leaders, our youth leaders, like, man, That's awesome. It makes a difference. And one of my youth leaders back when I was in high school explained something to me like this that has stuck with me ever since. He said this. He said, the enemy, we want you to think about this. The enemy wants you, before you sin, to be only thinking about God's grace. And after you sin, he wants you to be thinking about God's wrath. So the enemy, before your sin, when, you, when you're tempted to sin, wants you to be thinking, it's not a big deal. God's going to have grace for me. It's just this one time. God will forgive me anyway, so what's it matter? And then after you sin, the enemy wants you to be stuck in this shame cycle and say, how dare you? Don't you know how much God hates sin? And he must hate you now too because you just did that. That's what the enemy wants. And it's the opposite of what God wants. God wants us to remember his wrath towards sin before we sin and his grace after. Before we sin, when we're tempted, when everything in us wants whatever that thing is that we're tempted towards, God wants us to remember how much he hates it, how much friendship in the world makes us enemies of God. He wants us to remember that before we sin, to deter us from sin. And then when we do sin, God wants us to remember that he gives more grace. Once we've repented of that sin. The enemy wants us to think that there's no amount of repenting that you can do that can make up for what you've done. God wants us to remember that when we we repent, What's repentance? It's a turn. It's telling God, I did that, and I recognize that was wrong. 
when we repent, God wants us to remember that he gives grace upon grace upon grace. So dear friend, hear me right now. There is always more grace. If you're doubting right now whether God really has grace for you, if it's really sufficient, if it's really enough, if it's going to run dry for you, if that's you, that's like going to see Niagara Falls and being worried that it's going to run out of water. How foolish would that be? You're on vacation at Niagara Falls and you're at the, standing at the bottom of the falls and, and you're just so worried. All you can do is think about, well, what if it runs dry? How much more God's grace for us. Niagara Falls isn't going to run out of water and God never runs out of grace. He gives more grace. So as we close this morning, I want to close with this. First of all, if you're hearing this and you don't have a relationship with the Lord, I urge you once again, don't make yourself an enemy of God. This is what God tells us. To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. And while you're still alive, you have an opportunity to repent and believe the greatest news in the world, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and know the incredible grace that's found in Jesus. But we don't know the number of our days. We don't know. You don't know. You don't know how many more days you will have to turn and follow Jesus. So don't wait until it's too late. If you die before we're following Jesus, the Bible tells us this also hard truth that you're going to spend eternity apart from God in hell. I don't want that for you. I want you to know his grace that frees us. To all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, to receive the Holy Spirit, and to know that his grace never runs dry. So if you're not following him yet, follow him today. Repent of your sins. Say, God, I know I've messed up. I know I've made a whole mess of my life. I know that there's nothing I can do to fix it on my own, but I believe that Jesus died for me and that his blood covers all my past, present, and future sin and that there is more grace. And if you do that, you will walk in newness of life. Follow him today. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, most of us in this room, this passage applies to us in a couple of ways. First of all, if you're finding yourself just getting seared to your sin, what do I mean by seared to your sin? It's if your sin doesn't bother you that much anymore, if you're just so used to it, you don't even really feel the need to repent anymore. Like, if that's you, that's a scary place to be. That's a sign that you are indeed making friendship with the world. And let the strong language of this passage, like, jostle you awake. Recognize, once again, all these things that we've been seeing in James. That a claim to faith, apart from any evidence of faith, isn't faith at all. Like I said before, don't waste this conviction. Don't shrug it off and repent of that sin. But then if you have repented, don't doubt that the grace of God overflows for you. Don't let the enemy in your ear to tell you that it still isn't enough. God's grace is sufficient for you. So if you're finding yourself just stuck in that cycle of shame and guilt, you don't even feel like you can go to God anymore because you just run out of chances, remember these beautiful, life-giving, freedom-bringing five words, but he gives more grace. Praise the Lord. 
Niagara Falls isn't going to run out of water, and his grace overflows for you. Let's remember how much he hates your sin before you sin, and remember his unending grace once you've repented of your sin. Our passage says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Are you going to be too proud to go to him? Are you going to be too stubborn to admit that you can't do it on your own? Don't let your pride harden you in your sin. Humble yourself and know his grace that flows freely for us. Amen? Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you these two things. We thank you for this reminder that it is possible for us to just be seared to our sin, not even listen to our conscience anymore. And that's even a sign of your grace that you tell us that. We thank you for that reminder and we thank you for these beautiful words that you give us more grace, more grace, more grace. How much? More. What if I need a lot? Even more. What if I really need a lot? Even more than that. We couldn't have grace if it were not for Jesus Christ coming and living a perfect life, dying a death that we deserve, and raising again from the dead. So God, may our lives reflect our friendship with you who saved us from the world, saved us from our sin. And as we now live in the world and go out into the world, may our lives reflect that, Lord. So for all of us who are going to go out this week to a variety of different places, variety of circumstances, situations, some are really, really hard. Some of us in this room know that we're going to be going into hard circumstances this week. Others of us don't. thank you for the grace that you give us the wisdom that you give us Lord, to follow you may the gospel bring life and joy and peace thank you pray in Jesus name amen let's stand and let's respond by singing together